0: Conspiracy show with Richard Seret from Zuma Radio, AM seven
1: forty. Hey, welcome to the Audio Imaginarium, and it is good to be back. The entire Sarat clan—well, four of us anyway—were felled by that nasty stomach flu that's been uh, going around. Uh, we, we were hit pretty hard last week. It started with uh, my little guy North. Uh, Who had what I describe the 18 hour flu. I don't know. This is a new variety. Maybe it's the metric system, but it used to be the 24. He got the 18 hour flu. And uh, of course, the little ones, they bounce back, right? Then Zach, a couple days later, his was 24 hours. And then the mighty Aphrodite, within a half hour of Zach going down, she went down, but for about 36 hours. And I think, I think you see where this is going. It's sort of ratcheting up. Then it was my turn last Saturday. And, of course, uh, I was not here on uh, for the program. Uh, my turn last Saturday at about 6 a.m. And I was not back on my feet in 100% for at least 48 hours. Uh, I mentioned uh, this briefly on Coast to Coast the other night when I was hosting. We had a small fire in the condo a week ago Friday. It's been quite a week or a couple of weeks that's right, a little fire. Uh, it was close. It could have been much, much worse. Um, but it, we had an unattended pot of, uh, of wax on the kitchen stove. Complete rookie mistake? Absolutely. However, uh, the mighty Aphrodite and I both received pretty substantial burns to our hands, second-degree uh, burns, I would say. And um, maybe a little later I can, I'll show it uh, to you on the webcam. Well, oh, what the heck? Can you see that? I don't know. It doesn't look too bad now. It's much, much better than it was. I know it's not pretty. Anyway, uh, here's the thing, though. A few weeks prior to that, we were down in Niagara Falls, and I wanted to visit Bruce McBurney, who's an inventor down there. He's been on this program talking about the 100-mile-per-gallon engine. He has a whole slew of inventions, but he also makes his own colloidal silver. And he's been on this program talking about colloidal silver, and I'm not going to make any claims about what colloidal silver can do uh, definitively. I'll just offer up up my own anecdotal evidence. So uh, immediately, so we bought some colloidal silver and uh, brought it back. And thankfully we did because um, uh, immediately after putting the fire out at the condo, we remembered the colloidal silver because it's supposed to be good for cuts and abrasions and burns. So we sprayed it all over our hands and then continued to do so every couple of hours. And uh, as bad as this looks now, I mean, it was... uh, Ten times worse. Uh, looking a few days ago, and uh, but I have not had one moment of pain or even mild discomfort. And I remember as a kid getting little tiny burns, you know, touching the stove on the corner of a finger, and excruciating. Right? You've had burns. You know how you know how painful they can be. And I'm looking at this. This my hand should be on fire, uh, but again, I attribute it to the colloidal silver. So, everything Bruce McBurney says ab- about it. And again, I'm not making claims I'm just uh, th- that it'll do this or that. I'm just telling you what happened to me. That's my story. In, uh, the webcam, of course, is up and running because we are doing another HOA Hangout on air tonight. And if you want to watch the live stream while listening to the show, Ain't Technology Grand, uh, you can go to my Twitter feed, at Richard Serrett, at Richard Serrett. And while you're there, follow and say hi. Uh, click on the YouTube link. It's at the top of the feed. If you missed the live stream, you can also watch it later on our YouTube channel, which is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. And uh, there's, a, there's an archive there. Uh, be listening at 11.30. Listening at the bottom of the hour for your chance to win a pair of free passes to my live stage event, Sunday, April the 26th, at the Regent Theatre in Oshawa. It's fast approaching. Uh, the speakers include... JFK assassination researcher Nelson Thal, who will be unpacking the Zapruder film frame by frame. The Lost and Found Tribes of Israel with Miss Jane Steele. We'll have an exact replica of the Shroud of Turin there. Remote viewing with Canada's Edgar Casey, Rosemary Ellen Guiley with a live demonstration of spirit communication. Electronic harassment expert Dr. John T- uh, Hall. Dr. John Hall, flying up from San Antonio. Ali Tan who's been on this program a number of times, is a producer, documentary film producer, of the critically acclaimed Doc, UFOs, Angels, and Gods. He'll be making a presentation and much more. For more information, visit followthetruth.tv. Followthetruth.tv. Or you can just call the box office at the Region Theater and order your tickets. And do it uh, quickly, if you can. 905 five seven two one thirty three ninety nine. 3399 the Oh, and one more little housekeeping note. Always uh, happy to make this sort of announcement. We have a new affiliate, W-E-Z-S-A-M in Boston. Or as they say, north or south of the 48th, uh, W, 49th parallel, I should say. W-E-Z-S-A-M in Boston. Uh, for a complete list of our affiliates, just go to richardserat.com, and under the For Everyone menu, just scroll down, you'll see Affiliates, and there you'll see our growing list. So thanks, W-E-Z-S-A-M in Boston, for adding us to your weekly schedule. Uh, so I mentioned the, f- the fire on Friday, and as it happens, the mighty Aphrodite and I were planning that night to go see, would head down the road to the Cineplex and see uh, the imitation game. Uh, which we have not seen yet, and um, uh, I was, I've been been meaning to see this movie for for quite a while, obviously. And if you're not familiar with it, this is the movie uh, that, that talks about the the formation, really, of the British intelligence agency MI6, which began in 1939, and they recruit this Cambridge mathematics uh, uh, genius, Alan Turing, who's played by Benedict Cumberbatch bri- brilliantly. And they hire him to, to, to uh, crack these Nazi codes, including the Enigma Code, which at that time cryptanalysts had thought were unbreakable. Earlier on, they had, uh, they had some success uh, cracking some of the Enigma Codes, and then the Germans kept creating even more complex Enigma Codes. And uh, I mention all of this because, as it turns out, Alan Turing has a rather interesting, uh, but up until now, unknown connection to one of Canada's most infamous military operations, the Dieppe Raid of August 1942, also known as the Battle of Dieppe, Operation Rudder, and uh, later it became known as Operation Jubilee, and that was, of course, the Allied attack on the German-occupied port of uh, Dieppe during the Second World War. 6,000 infantrymen, predominantly Canadian, were supported by a Canadian armored regiment and a strong force of Royal Navy and smaller Royal Air Force landing contingents, 5,000 Canadians, 1,000 British troops, even 50 Americans, uh, army rangers, were involved. Militarily, it was a disaster. A total of 3,367 of the uh, just over 6,000 men, almost 60% who made it ashore were either killed, wounded, or captured. And, of course, the Royal Air Force failed to lure the Luftwaffe into open battle, and they lost 106 aircraft. Many of the veterans of Dieppe that survived went to their graves, wondering, what the hell was the point of that? Now, this tragic chapter in military history has been rewritten, and many of the mysteries and questions surrounding Dieppe have been answered in a relatively new book called One Day in August, the Untold Story Behind Canada's Tragedy at Dieppe. And the author, David O'Keefe, joins us from his office in Montreal. David, welcome to The Conspiracy Show. How are you? Well, good evening. Thanks for having me. I'm fine. How are you? Very well, and thanks, to, uh, our, our, thanks for joining us on our, our Hangout as well. My pleasure. Uh, the, first of all, uh, set the stage. I, mean, I mentioned briefly uh, the events of, of um, mm. August 19, 1942. Uh, and I, I gave some some data there, but but set the stage for for uh, for us. What was sort of the official uh, rationale for that operation?
2: Well, there were several, I guess, over the years. Number one was that they were attempting to test German defenses. Of course, Nazi Germany was at the the height of its power. I mean, it ran all of Europe from, you know, right right from the English Channel all the way to Moscow, and then it extended as far north as the Arctic Circle, and down to North Africa. I mean, this was the apex of Hitler's power. So in this particular point, in the summer of 1942, the Allies, and rather, for what seemed to be mysterious reasons, put on a raid to test German defenses. At least that was the standard notion. And then later on, there were various other notions after this turned into a disaster that were um, passed along as the reasons for it. And one of them being placating Stalin's calls for a second front. Another one was to seek out an air battle. And there were some that even suggested that this might have actually been a sacrificial mission from the get-go to show the Americans... The futility of trying to launch a second front in 1942. You, you begin
1: the uh, the book uh, one day in August, mm. the untold story behind Canada's tragedy at Dieppe, from a uh, with a quote from an in, uh, from a German inter- interrogator mm-hmm. uh, who interrogated a young Canadian by the name of Major Brian McCool. Uh, uh, talk to us about that that uh, inter- interrogator.
2: Well, this is one of the things that I think permeates the historiography or the history of the Dieppe operation was this essential question, what was this all about? And I think his um, answer on that particular day pretty much summed up the frustration for almost every man who was there, with the exception of those who would have been in the know, which would have been just a tiny handful of what Dieppe was all about. And that frustration has something that, you know, something really that's lasted for almost 70 years. And the the interrogator asked McCool... Mm -hmm. What were you trying to do? Right. Because
1: this operation was... This invasion was so large in scope, but, but so
2: essentially poorly prepared. What were you guys thinking? Well, that was the whole thing. I mean, even the Germans couldn't figure this out. Um, This was not an invasion like you saw two years later in Normandy. This was a one-day raid, or as Churchill would call it, a butcher and bolt operation. In other words, get in for one day, get out. But unlike the others that had been attempted so far up in Norway or even on the west coast of France, this one was much larger in scope. Usually the other ones were smaller, maybe 500 to 1,000 men. But this one came in significant force, not anywhere close to what they had in Normandy a couple of years later, but too big, if you will, to really be understood in the contemporary realm. Uh,
1: David O'Keefe joins us from Montreal. The book is One Day in August, The Untold Story Behind Canada's Tragedy at Dieppe. Now, David, I don't know how old you are. Uh, I mean, you are a, an historian. Um, but, I mean, for those of a certain age out there listening who, uh, for them, you know, the Second World War is uh, not even a distant memory. It's, it's uh, something that maybe their great-grandparents have told them about. Mm. Why does someone uh, of your age, of your generation, start poking around in this chapter of our history?
2: Well, I guess for me, I mean, my my father was a World War II vet. My grandfather fought in World War I, and I had plenty of friends who, you know, had their grandparents there, and even my students now have had their grandparents or great-grandparents at Dieppe. And I think for me as a as a military historian, I mean, Dieppe is one of the greatest mysteries of the Second World War, one of the greatest tragedies, and certainly for Canadians. I mean, this was a, you know, um, uh, a blotch, if you will, on Canadian military history for so many years.
1: It certainly and was. David, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to jump in. We'll take a timeout. Yep. We've got that music percolating up on the other side. We'll explore further one day in August. The untold story behind Canada's tragedy at Dieppe, David O'Keefe. Here on The Conspiracy Show, we'll learn about the connection to Alan Turing, the Enigma Code, and even James Bond. Back with more of The Conspiracy Show. My name is Richard Serrett. Stay with us. Welcome back. My guest, David O'Keefe, in Montreal, has rewritten history. Uh, The 1942 Allied raid on Dieppe, one of Canada's worst military disasters, after less than a day's fighting, 3,367 Canadian men, over two-thirds of the Canadians participating in the operation, were killed, wounded, captured, or listed as missing. The purpose of the raid has remained a mystery for over 70 years. Quote, this was too big for a raid and too small for invasion, end quote, said a puzzled German interrogator to a captured prisoner. What were you trying to do? The prisoner's response is quoted near the beginning of uh, David's One Day in August. He said, if you could tell me, I would be very grateful. David O'Keefe will get into how... You connected the Dieppe raid uh, to the allies, the ally effort to to crack the Enigma code. Um, you know, over the next uh, few few moments here. Mm-hmm. But, but where does it? Where does this trail begin for you? When did you start to make these connections?
2: Well, I guess it started about uh, it would have been almost twenty years ago. Actually, this month when I made my first discovery, and that was the document that started this whole journey. I was. Um, working in the British archives and came across a report that was recently released at that time and had formerly been ultra-classified, in other words, above top secret. And the report had to do with the, the exploits of a very mysterious commando unit called the 30th Assault Unit or 30th Commando. And um, this was striking because this was the first time I'd ever heard of this unit. And let alone in this document, it lists what they were looking for in 1942, which was anything and everything that would have helped the, co- the uh, codebreakers at Bletchley Park, like Alan Turing. And also what really got me was in the fourth
3: paragraph,
2: one throwaway line that started the entire journey. As regards capture, the party at Dieppe Did not reach its objective. And then suddenly I realized well, I have one, you know, a document here about a commando unit raised specifically to pinch or steal anything to do with the Enigma machine. Now it's connected to Dieppe, one of Canada's greatest disasters, one of Canada's greatest tragedies, and also one of World War II's greatest mysteries. So that's really how it all began.
1: I should mention that the, that top-secret document recently declassified that you just mentioned, uh, that's up on our uh, – visible on our, our HOA, our Hangout on Air, for those of you mm-hmm. uh, watching the live stream, or if you're not and you'd like to, uh, to check it out, uh, you can see it later on the, uh, the archived HOA at our YouTube channel, The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. David O'Keefe here with us one day in August. Uh, the Enigma machine, mm-hmm. and of course this is very timely – uh, with obviously the uh, the imitation game coming out uh, yet no mention I haven't seen the movie yet though I'm, I'm guessing no mention obviously of um, the role of uh, of Dieppe or the Canadian the uh, Canadian military effort
3: no, not in at this all. pinch
1: operation um, perhaps you know had this document come to uh, to light, a few years ago, maybe it would have made it into the movie. Uh, well, the, 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 you call it a pinch operation. Yeah. Explain what a pinch operation okay. is.
2: A, a pinch operation, it comes from the British slang, pinch, to mean to steal or mm-hmm. swipe. And the idea was to get into uh, an enemy headquarters, an enemy ship anywhere where you could come into contact with the kind of material you needed that would help the code breakers at Bletchley. So not only were you interested in the machine itself, the Enigma machine, which in some cases was almost secondary, what you really needed were the instruction manuals for lack of a better term. All the sheets, the coding, the settings, um, how to put the machine together on a particular day, how to set the particular key, kind of like stealing a whole list of pin numbers for bank cards, if you would. In other words, it's one thing to have the card, but unless you know what the PIN number is, you won't be able to use it. And that's what they were looking for.
1: Okay, so once you saw a reference to this pinch operation connected to Dieppe, what was your next stage in unraveling this seven-decade-old
2: mystery? Well, at first, you can imagine. I mean, it seemed to be you know, rather outlandish when I thought of it. I mean, first of all, okay, this is fascinating. Um, this must be nothing more than a caboose on a train that was already leaving for Dieppe. But there was something in the back of the, um, back of the uh, uh, report that really caught my imagination, and it said no rage should be laid on specifically for signals intelligence or pinch operations unless it's big enough to presuppose normal operational uh, objectives. In other words, if you are going to pinch, you have to make sure that it is done within a larger operation to make sure that your enemy, in this case the Germans, would never catch on. Is
1: there anyone
2: uh, associated
1: with the the, the planning, uh, the operation of of Dieppe that's still
2: alive? Well, unfortunately, at that level, no, not in the planning level. Everybody, as far as I know, has passed on. I was fortunate enough to actually find the last of 30th Assault Unit who was left alive, and he still is today. Unfortunately, he's, he's succumbed to Alzheimer's now, um, and that was Paul McGraw who after I continued or started my research, years later I actually approached the British Navy and I approached the Naval Historical Branch and basically you know, told them what I had found. And you have to understand that this unfolds almost like a jigsaw puzzle. In other words, there's so many pieces per year that are released. So it took about a oh, good 14 to 15 years before I felt comfortable enough to actually approach the authorities and say, hey, look, this is what I'm working on. This is what the evidence shows. This is what it suggests. Would you be able to throw any light on it? And they basically took a look at it and said, you know what? I think you might be onto something here. And one of the historians left the room, came back in two minutes, and gave me a name and a number and said, look, you better talk to this guy. And I said, why? And he said, well, he's the last of the commandos that were at Dieppe. So sure enough, within a, you know, about a week, I was on a plane to Scotland, and we interviewed Paul McGraw, who was one of the last ones there. But unfortunately, because of the March of Time, uh, the men who were responsible for planning, like Lord Louis Mountbatten or Hughes Hallett or even you know, Ham Roberts, the Canadian uh, general, they've all passed away many years ago.
1: So how many uh, soldiers,
2: uh, or commandos, people that came
1: ashore on April 19, 1942, were in the know about the true
2: uh, purpose of the operation? Well, it's very hard to say that anybody who actually came ashore would know the overall purpose. Remember, in, in, in the way military security is done, it's all stovepiped. It's all done on the need-to-know. So you're told as much as you need to know to get your immediate objective done. Compartmentalization. You got it. This is yeah. how big so, secrets mean, if, are kept quiet. Know, if a commando storms ashore and grabs the material, he would know that this is important. He may not know why it's important, but he knows that this is what he's after, and it, they have to get it out quickly. Now, would he have known about Bletchley Park? Would he have known about cryptography? No, not at all, because that would have been the idea of compartmentalization for security purposes. And
1: are there any clues in any of the documents that you've uncovered um, relating to the, the existence of this material at this port,
2: Dieppe? Well, the interesting part is, when you lay on a raid like this, um, you basically go on the intelligence estimates you have. And I was able to find the estimate for what they suspected was German naval headquarters in the harbor. Now, there were two big targets they were after. One were the trawlers, the ships that would have used the Enigma machine and would have had all their code books. But those code books would have been good for the current months, and maybe the next month. The real pot of gold in Dieppe was the naval uh, naval headquarters, because not only would you have the current month and next month, but you would have had a safe containing all the code material for the next six months, maybe a year, all ready to be issued to the ships. So you can see what they were attempting to do. Now, in this particular case, they located it in a mysterious hotel in the harbor called the Hotel Moderne. And this is what they suspected, British intelligence suspected, was the pot of gold, if you will. Why did they fail? Well, that goes down to the entire operation. I mean, one of the most remarkable moments in this entire research journey was when I found out um, after pressing the government code and cipher school to release the material, they finally agreed to release what would be called the policy papers to show that these pinch operations were not just these ad hoc units thrown on to operations. But they actually had three categories of these. In other words, there was a doctrine for this, a playbook. And so they would have what they call a pinch by chance. In other words, in the middle of a battle, you stumble across something, you find it fascinating, you pick it up, you bring it back. Obviously, Dieppe wasn't that. And then there was two other categories, a pinch by opportunity. In other words, we have a battle that's going to be raging or an operation that's going to be laid on, and it looks like we're going to come into contact with what we're after or what we're going for, so you better be prepared. And the third one was actually a pinch by design. In other words, we have a huge problem. We need to solve it, and let's launch a raid or another type of operation to make sure we get what we're coming for. So Dieppe was pinch by design. That is what Dieppe turns out to be, a pinch by design.
1: Explain the importance uh, of breaking the Enigma code Mm. in terms of tracking the movements of these, you know, these deadly U-boats.
2: Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, you have to understand, I mean, as we know, information is power. And in World War II, the lifeblood of the entire Allied war effort was the control of the sea lanes, particularly when the United States of America comes into the war in December of 1941. I mean, uh, you know, most of you know, Most of Churchill's cabinet is jumping up and down when the United States comes in at first because they realize that the, you know, the economic potential that the United States has. The only problem is it's not going to help if the tanks, the guns, the manpower, the raw materials are stuck in the United States. You've got to get them across U-boat-infested waters. And one of the ways of doing this in an economic way and relatively safe way is to make sure that you can break into the German codes and ciphers, which let you know it, to a relative grieve, degree of certainty where they're located, what their strengths, their weaknesses, their hopes, their dreams, their desires, etc., are. And as a result, you can reroute your convoys away from danger, or in some cases, if you've developed the capability, you can run right into the U-boats and try to hunt them down and kill them. But in 1942, just after the U.S. uh, enters the war, it's something what you alluded to earlier. The Allies had had great success breaking into the Enigma in 1941, thanks to Turing and thanks to earlier pinch raids. And so the Germans started to catch on a little bit. And now they introduced a new form of Enigma machine, which was basically a bastardized version of the three-rotor. And this was called a four-rotor machine. And instantly, um, starting in February 1942, the Operational Intelligence Center in Bletchley Park were completely blacked out. So, in other words, suddenly they only had minuscule information about the whereabouts of U-boats. Yeah, they, and, were, they were roaming around unimpeded. Yes, essentially. And, I mean, you have sinkings that are going through the roof, particularly off the American coast in uh, the first few months of 1942.
1: My uncle was, uh, was, a, was uh, on, the, on the corvettes that were escorting a lot of these Allied merchant vessels.
2: Yeah, they were. I mean, the Canadians were running this operation out of Halifax, and then, of course, the Americans were sort of stumbling through the first couple of months because they didn't adopt the convoy system until later in 1942. And meanwhile, the the British now are fighting against the Japanese. They suddenly have, you know, the Germans they have to watch out for all through the Atlantic, and now the Japanese in the Indian Ocean. So one of the greatest force multipliers that they had was what they would call ultra this classified process of breaking into enemy communications and then exploiting it. So in other words, it's kind of like reading, you know, four or five cards in your opponent's poker hand, if it will.
1: Uh, we're, we're coming up on, a, on another break. When we come back, I, I want to talk about some of the other colorful personalities mm. that were uh, that figure in your book. Uh, obviously, you mentioned Lord Louis Mountbatten, uh, Sir Winston Churchill, of course, uh, Alan Turing, who we, we mentioned earlier, uh, played uh, by... Mr. Cumberbatch in uh, The Imitation Game Uh, but the most surprising character of of all and that is the author of the James Bond Mm -hmm. franchise Ian Fleming we'll uh, find out about his connection to the untold story behind Canada's tragedy at Dieppe the author of One Day in August David O'Keefe stays with us live from Montreal back with more of The Conspiracy Show your chance to win tickets to Follow the Truth 2 coming up in mere moments stay with us Welcome back. Next week on the program, Michael Horn, who is the American media representative of UFO ET contactee, Billy Meyer. And uh, Michael will be here to talk about, among other things, his uh, new documentary. It's called And Did They Listen? Not sure if you can see that. There you go. On our uh, HOA. All right, uh, back to my conversation with uh, David O'Keefe, author of One Day in August, The Untold Story Behind Canada's Tragedy at Dieppe, in just a moment. But now, your opportunity to score a, a pair of passes for my live stage event, Follow the Truth 2, happening Sunday, April the 26th, at the beautiful Region Theatre in Oshawa. Now, one of our uh, speakers, one of our presenters at Follow the Truth 2 will be a broadcaster, playwright, Ms. Jane Steele, who will be presenting on The Lost and Found Tribes of Israel. Here's what you need to do. Be the third caller with the correct answer. We'll make the, uh, the phone lines available to you now. Tim is awaiting your call. And the question is, name three, any three of the, f- the 12 tribes of Israel. Name any three of the 12 tribes of Israel. Be the third caller through at 416-360-0740, 416-360-0740, or toll-free, 1-866-740-4740. Third caller with the correct answer, and that's a pair of tickets to follow the truth Sunday, April the 26th at the Regent Theatre. And if you don't win, you can still get tickets at the box office. Followthetruth.tv All right. Uh, David, you sifted through something like 150,000 pages of documents to unravel this mystery. Uh, And again, the the thesis here is that the Dieppe Raid, uh, although botched as it was and tragic as it was, it was uh, an attempt to seize uh, the Enigma Code. And at what point did the, uh, the name Ian Fleming, of course, the author of the James Bond books, what, at what point did uh, you stumble onto Ian Fleming's connection to this?
2: Well, it's, it's kind of remarkable. I guess you could say Fleming's connection was right there from the start because this 30th assault unit that I mentioned to you earlier um, was actually raised by Ian Fleming which is one of the reasons why I kind of hesitated at the beginning, back in 1995, to take it any further, simply because Ian Fleming, uh, for most historians, is, um, well, a minefield, to be honest with you. It's kind of like walking into a minefield when you, when you deal with a character as famous as Fleming. Because, you know, for so many years, we know Fleming through Bond, and a lot of times people mistake, uh, mistake him for being Bond. And I think that was one of the big challenges I had as a historian right away, was to try to figure out who the real Fleming was from 39 to 42.
1: He's an enigma in and of himself.
2: You got it, without a doubt. Um, He was a fascinating character. And I mean, a lot of people believe he was an agent like Bond in the field. There was no truth to that whatsoever. Oh, really? Interesting. Yeah, well, that was the fascinating thing. I mean, essentially, he was the, well... The way that some people in the british uh, in British government like to portray him is nothing more than a faceless bureaucrat, an opportunist who ended up you know going out to sea on the Dieppe parade to basically act as an observer um, to watch his new commando unit go into action. And when I was looking, you know, doing my research on him, I realized he was anything but. He certainly wasn't a superhero, but at the same time, he was anything but a faceless bureaucrat. He was actually the personal assistant to the director of naval intelligence, John Godfrey, which means he was his hatchet man, his go-to guy, his fixer. Anything that needed to be done that may have been ruthless or Machiavellian or required a certain panache and creative ability, that was Fleming's, you know, bailiwick. In other words,
1: uh, Fleming wasn't beyond um, allowing, well, not beyond treating humans as cannon fodder.
2: Well, yes. I mean, he would, I mean, he was notorious for that. I mean, it was part of his makeup. I mean, he, in a certain situation, he would see the objective, and it really wouldn't matter how he got, you know, got it done. And that is something that comes through in pretty much all his dealings in the Second World War. I mean, this is a guy who had his finger in the pie of almost every intelligence operation going on, not just with naval intelligence, but with MI5, MI6, um, you know, at Bletchley Park. He was responsible for the pinch portfolio for the first couple of years of the war. At any
1: point, David, did the trail lead back to, I mentioned um, my my Follow the Truth event happening in Oshawa. Did, did, at mm-hmm. any point, did your trail... Uh, lead back to Camp X, the infamous Camp X in Oshawa?
2: Well, not really in a direct way. Indirectly, it was all part of the same circuit. Of course, you know, they had the Hydra operation that was at Camp X, and this was relaying the fruits of Ultra, in other words, the cryptography right around the world. And then this was an incredible network. I mean, people tend to forget that by the end of the war, there were about 10,000 people involved with Bletchley Park and the SIGINT operations just in Great Britain. And then you add the Americans and the Canadians involved, and you've got a massive factory of intelligence and an incredible network. And the the camp that you refer to, Camp X in Oshawa, had a major relay signal station. And as far as we know, there's no evidence to suggest they were doing any cryptography there, but at the same time, they were relaying the essential information to and from the front. Although it is, it is.
1: Can you confirm that Fleming did spend some time at Camp X?
2: Well, unfortunately, I can't. Mm. Uh, As a matter of fact, we know he was in North America. There's rumors that he was at the camp, and those rumors tend to, again, I think, transcend into the Bond mystique. Yes, indeed. He trained there. He may have, you know killed somebody there or failed to kill somebody there. But there's no evidence in 150,000 pages that I went through to suggest he was ever there to train, let All alone right. there. There's your assignment the the for
1: California. your next book, David. There's your assignment for your next book. This <laughs> <laughs> yeah. will take a out We'll come back. I want to find out more about Rear Admiral John Godfrey, no sometimes cited as the inspiration for 007's boss, M, played with great panache by Judy Dench. <laughs> we'll come back and continue to discuss... David O'Keefe's book, One Day in August, right here on The Conspiracy Show. Stay with us. And congratulations to Ms. Sean Denard of Toronto, who has won a pair of passes to Follow the Truth to my live stage event happening Sunday, April the 26th at the Region Theater. In Oshawa, home of the infamous Camp X, which has sort of wound its way into our conversation uh, with uh, David O'Keefe, who joins us live from Montreal, remains with us a few moments yet, talking about One Day in August, the untold story behind Canada's tragedy at Dieppe. And again, if you're just joining us, uh, this is really rewriting history, because although Dieppe was a military disaster, uh, ended in a tragic loss of life, Staggering loss of life gave the Nazis a propaganda victory. Uh, the The real purpose of that, the real purpose of that uh, operation, was in fact the retrieval of the Enigma code. Uh, one of many attempts at retrieving the Enigma code. Uh, so back to Rear Admiral John Godfrey, again sometimes cited as the inspiration for 007's boss M in the James Bond series. Uh, This was not his sort of first uh, crazy, cockamamie scheme, was it?
2: Well, no. As a matter of fact, uh, you know, uh, Godfrey was a fascinating character to start with, you know, career Royal Navy officer, and then in 1939 became director of naval intelligence. There was a lot to him that um, he he was basically trying to rebuild an intelligence empire, that had been taken away from naval intelligence at the end of World War I. And part of it, um, or in an attempt to do this, was indeed to make sure that he kept his finger and his pulse on Enigma cryptography. But there were a lot of other schemes that went on starting from 1939 onward, in particular 1940, where both Fleming and Godfrey um, came up with, and particularly Fleming, came up with this operation called Ruthless, which was really remarkable, and uh, for most historians, um, they always thought that this was just simply a flight of Fleming fancy, if you will, uh, that never got off the ground. And the idea was to, very simply, was to dress up a a commando unit like a German bomber crew, fly a captured German bomber over the English Channel, find a ship that may be carrying the kind of material that they needed, fake an emergency landing, and then pull a Trojan horseplay. And so, in other words, when the rescue craft comes out, jump on, seize the crew, seize the machine that you're looking for, or the code books, and then kill the crew to cover it up. And the remarkable part was that when I started this journey and came across this, I assumed, like most of the Fleming uh, Fleming biographers, that this never came to fruition. But in reality, it did, and it came off twice, but it came up empty twice, but that's a fascinating um, indictment, if you will, or perhaps uh, an example of the links that naval intelligence, not just naval intelligence, but also the, Ar- the Air Force and the Navy were willing to go to to get this kind of material.
1: Was Godfrey and, by extension, Ian Fleming, were they a little bit the bumblers?
2: Well, I think all this was new. I mean, they are experimenting. I mean, right from 1939 up until 42, when Dieppe happens, They're essentially experimenting with ways of capturing this material and getting away with it. And so as a result, they're pushing the envelope without a doubt. And one of the big problems is leading up to Dieppe, they never have a setback, or at least not a major setback to to check them. So there's a growing arrogance, a growing hubris, a victory disease that's setting in. In other words, look, we've been successful doing this up in Norway. Why not take it? you know, across the channel, why not enlarge it? So not only do we have commando units, you know, hitting the main harbour, but now they're adding extra commando units on the wings to take out, uh, you know, two naval batteries and perhaps find some stuff there. So they're getting, um, yeah, part of it is, I guess you could say, bumbling, but within the, the context of experimenting and pushing the envelope.
1: Had Dieppe. Uh, gone off as planned? Had mm-hmm. it had been a success and the retrieval of the encrypted material were it, were it successful, what would it have meant to the war effort? What, I mean, well, would it have those, ended quickly?
2: Well, that's a good question. I mean, it's an incredible counterfactual question. A what if? Um, Most historians believe that having something like Ultra, the ability to read your enemy's communications, shaved at least a year, if not two years, off the entire war and saved millions of lives. Um, Had Dieppe actually come off, it would have given them probably an extra four to five months. In other words, it was only in late December when they they actually broke through uh, the four-rotor enigma. And if they would have done that in August, then... I, it would be very difficult to calculate, but without a doubt, the war likely would have been shortened,
1: and would have saved perhaps hundreds of thousands of lives. Could very well. Why, why keep this a secret for so long? I mean, especially for veterans and their families, who many of them who went to their grave thinking it was pointless. Mm.
2: Well, that's the, coloring, that's the
1: tragedy. Especially. That's one of that's 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 a huge tragedy.
2: It is. It is, and I think there's a couple of reasons. First of all, Ultra, when these men like Fleming, Godfrey, Mountbatten were indoctrinated, in other words, they were read the riot act of what to do, what not to do, and signed the Official Secrets Act, they were told that this would never be revealed. And essentially, the existence of Ultra remained classified until the late 1970s, when finally the British admitted that, yes, without a doubt, we were doing this. But then it's taken almost another 30 years for them, or more than 30 years, for them to actually start to release all this material. And when I approached GCHQ and asked them, I said, look, why is it taking so long? And they said, well, we're starting to you know, uh, release material on the operations, etc. And they said, now we're going to release it. Uh, part of it was they didn't want to release it all in one chunk because they were afraid this would draw attention to it. And so as a result, they wanted to release it in a very protracted and controlled way. Why? why? Why not draw attention to it? Well, they didn't really want to, I think, probably because they didn't want anybody sort of poking around into sort of the Machiavellian intent, if you will, behind these operations. The ruthless nature, in other words, what they were willing to go to, to achieve these objectives, which in some cases, you know, really walked the fine line, you know, uh, uh, of war crimes. Um, Sure, but not, we not we know
1: we know from history. I mean that this was you know using humans as cannon fodder was uh, it was just standard operating procedure certainly in the First World War.
2: Well, it certainly was in World War Two as well. I mean, when you think of you know all the men who have died taking a you know a, a hill in the middle of nowhere or you know being lost in a bombing raid over Germany, um, you know certainly, and I. I I'm very hesitant to say that their lives were worth it at Dieppe or the deaths were worth it at Dieppe. But certainly given, you know, some of the other reasons why, how you could lose your life uh, during war, certainly this one probably had, you know, more merit than others.
1: Well, it does now, thanks to Mm. you, David, because now uh, it is, uh, instead of being associated with futility, uh, now it takes on this tremendous... You know, heroic effort. I mean, there's no question that, regardless of why they were there, these men were heroes. But now the operation, um, it 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 has context. It has purpose. Mm. And had it been successful, you know, it was mm. it would have saved hundreds of thousands of lives. It, it changes well. every. It yeah. changes everything, David.
2: Well, it's funny because I'm really torn about that. You know, you you take a look at this and you wonder why. You know, why did they need to go to this extreme? And somebody has asked me on many occasions, or I've been asked on many occasions, you know, was it worth it? And, you know, certainly there was an altruistic intent, and it certainly was worth it in that sense to pull off something like this. But I don't know if it necessarily was worth the cost at the end because, you know, surely there had to be a better method of pulling something like this off.
1: How is the book now uh, being received by uh, by veterans?
2: Um, The veterans are, are, to be honest with you, blown away by it. I mean, this is something that they didn't expect, and and mind you, there are only a few of them left, Um, you know, probably less than about maybe 50 to 100 now. I mean, we're 72 years after, 73 years after the event, so there are very few of them. But for the ones who have read it um, and seen the new evidence, I mean, they are profoundly changed. And that was something I had to—I um, really had to watch out for as a historian because, to be honest with you, this was the first time that I really was confronted with the power of history and the power of the truth. And uh, I tell you, after meeting some of the veterans, I made sure I went back and crossed my T's and dotted my I's on, uh, on my research because I realized just how powerful this was going to be. Uh, and do you, ha- do you hope
1: that there will be some, perhaps, uh, assurances that when going forward – a uh, dep is is taught in, in the in the schools and i quite frankly i don't even know if it is and that would be a, it would be a, a colossal shame if it is not but that, that the 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 historical record will be now changed to reflect your
2: your findings well, certainly, I hope that the, you know, the historical record will change to respect not just the findings, but the evidence. And that's really the key. You know, there was a lot of new evidence that has come out, and it's caught, I think, the historical community off guard, um, simply because it took so long to come out. And also, too, it came out in such an overwhelming way. I never really expected that it was going to take so long, let alone 150,000 pages uh, to do it. And then, you know, at the end of the day, come out with significantly new evidence that can completely changes our understanding of the operation is, um, you know, it's really moving at light speed when it comes to the historical community. Uh, so, it, you know, it, eventually it, it will get there. But it, I think it's right now, it's kind of a culture shock, if you will.
1: Sure. Would it be too much, do you think, to ask that uh, a, a a standing member uh, of the uh, def- Canadian, you know, Ministry of Defense, perhaps the cabinet Minister responsible for defence might at one point stand up in the house and and address this issue, put it on the record officially.
2: Well, it would be great. Yeah, I mean, I certainly have no issues with that. Um, I just hope it's you know I hope it's done in the proper way. David, congratulations. Uh, it's, thank you. It's,
1: it's not only, uh, you know, the, the evidence and the investigation is, is thorough, but it's, it's well written. I mean, it's a real page-turner. Uh, mm-hmm. And, you know, that's a real accomplishment. Obviously, you, making history come to life uh, is, is always a difficult task, and you've done it brilliantly. Well, thank you. David O'Keefe, one day in August, the untold story behind Canada's tragedy at Dieppe. I think you owe it. Uh, We all owe it uh, to our ancestors, uh, perhaps even uh, loved ones, immediate uh, family members, to read this book and uh, understand what really happened at Dieppe. All right. When we come back, more interesting programming here on The Conspiracy Show. We'll uh, speak with a healer. And... uh, We'll tell you a little bit more about what's coming up in future weeks on The Conspiracy Show. As always, the website is richardserrett.com. That's your portal to the program. And you can say hello on Twitter at richardserrett. Follow the truth. Hey, thanks for inviting me into your home, your truck, your smartphone, your crystal radio, wherever you're hearing me. Welcome. Albert, the intern, is here, and we have another HOA going, and you can join the live stream by going to my Twitter feed, at Richard Serrett, and while there, be sure to follow and say hi. Again, at Richard uh, You'll find that link for the HOA at the top or near the top of the Twitter feed. And it's a, it's a YouTube live stream link. Just click on that, and um, if you miss it, and you're just listening on regular terrestrial radio or on the podcast, and you want to see the uh, the YouTube stream... You can uh, check it out. It'll be archived on our YouTube channel. That's The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. And uh, we've uh, got a live guest in studio here, which we don't uh, do very often, so we had to tidy up a little bit because we have company. And I'll introduce you to her in just a moment. I just want to mention that Albert has posted some great stories atop richardserrett.com in the highlight carousel. Uh, There's a fascinating story there about... The CIA's campaign to steal Apple's secrets, and uh, there's also sort of dipped into the archives for this one. A story dating back 2013 from the folks at the Center for Research on Globalization. Uh, Back in 2013, they published a study on new seismic evidence pointing towards controlled demolition of the WTC buildings during 9/11. Dre Russo. Uh, is a doctor of geophysics and geology and a former researcher in the French National Center of Scientific Research, or the CNRS. And he has published 50 papers on the relationships between the characteristics of progressive mechanical waves and geology. So, in other words, he's an expert on measurement of acoustic waves. And uh, Rousseau, in this report, says that the seismic waves measured on September 11th proves that the three buildings were brought down by controlled demolition. Uh, So that is up on the Highlight Carousel at richardserrett.com. You can uh, click on that. It'll take you to the article, read it, and decide for yourself whether that's credible or not. Uh, Once again, let me remind you of my live stage event, Follow the Truth 2 in Oshawa, Region Theatre, fast approaching, uh, Sunday, April the 26th. And I'm presenting seven remarkable speakers... That'll be followed by an exclusive meet and greet, JFK assassination researcher Nelson Thal, who also serves as the researcher for my television program, The Conspiracy Show. He'll be there unpacking the Zapruder film frame by frame. That's not to be missed. Uh, Canada's, Ed- Canada's Edgar Casey, Dr. Douglas James Cottrell, with a live demonstration of remote viewing. Uh, we'll talk about the Lost Tribes of Israel, the Shroud of Turin. Rosemary Ellen Guiley is uh, flying up. Paranormal investigator Rosemary Ellen Guiley will do a live uh, demonstration on stage involving spirit communication and her spirit boxes. Dr. John Hall flying up from San Antonio to talk about electronic harassment. Uh, UFOs, Gods, and Angels producer. This is a great documentary, if you haven't seen it already. It's um, uh, put together by Ali Siadatan, who's been on the program as well. So that's all happening Sunday, April the 26th, live on stage, Regent Theatre, yours truly hosting. For more info, visit followthetruth.tv. Now, I mentioned Dr. Cottrell, remote viewer, medical intuitive. He's also a healer. Uh, And if you're a regular listener to this program, you'll be well aware of some of the remarkable events that have transpired between Dr. Cottrell and my good friend George Ginescu, the host of Big Band Sunday Night, whose program precedes mine here on our flagship station AM 740 Zuma Radio. But there are others. There are others out there with this gift of the healing touch. Energy healing, some call it. Others call it faith healing. And I've recently learned of one such from someone else in the remote viewing community. And uh, she joins us here in studio uh, from Kentucky. Anita Atwell has been blessed with the ability to work with the God light source energy, as she calls it, to help and heal those who are seeking the answers to their own personal life traumas when fear, loss and crisis mentally, physically and emotionally have changed the energy in their lives. Anita has the ability to see into the physical body very much like an X-ray tapping into the causes and sources of the conditions affecting people. She's a true medium, being able to not only heal but also to foresee the future, clear negative energy and blockages, and connect and communicate with those who have passed on, offering guidance and messages. Anita Atwell, welcome to The Conspiracy Show. How are you? I am very
4: good, Richard. Nice to meet you.
1: you. Sorry, it's a rookie mistake on my part. I forgot to turn your mic on.
4: (laughs) Okay. Nice to meet you, Richard. Nice to meet you. Hello to all of you listeners.
1: Yes. Uh, Now you're you're coming to us uh, from Kentucky. Yes. And uh, we have a couple of affiliates down in, I think, in in Lexington. So uh, if you want to say hello to anyone down in uh, in Kentucky.
4: Hello to my fellow Kentuckians. Is
1: that what they're called, Kentuckians?
4: Kentuckians. All
1: right. How did this begin for you, Anita? I mean, is this you know? Is this genetic? Is this generational?
4: Um. I think so, yeah. I, I know my mother has abilities also, and my father did too. Um, but I, I started at a really early age seeing, you know, I saw my grandfather when I was probably four years old.
1: After he had passed?
4: After he, I, hadn't, I had never met him because um, he passed before he got to meet me. So at the age of four, I had never met him, but he came to me um, as I was outside playing On a swing set. And so he came to me um, when I was four and I did, you know, I I had an encounter with him. He actually saved my life by I was getting ready to jump into a creek and he told me my mother was calling for me. So I um, that was my first experience with, uh, you know, with seeing someone who had passed.
1: Do I I mean how did you find out that that was your grandfather?
4: Well, um he said he was my grandfather and of course I was like okay as a child you you just believe, right? Right. And um so he he screamed at me as I was getting ready to jump into the water and he said your mother is calling you. Your mother's calling you and I'm like no she isn't. I don't hear her. But I eventually left and went back home and I told my mother. I said my grandfather my grandfather um told me that you were calling me and she said what grandfather? And, and she, so she thought it was her father who was still alive at the time. So she ran to get a picture of him and showed it to me. And I was like, no, not that grandpa, the other grandpa. And she's like, oh, Anita, you don't have another grandpa. He's died. And so she goes and gets the other picture of the other grandpa. I'm like, yeah, that's him. That's the one. He's outside. <laughs> so she runs outside looking for him. And, of course, there's no one there. But that was my first experience.
0: Do
1: you remember that vividly or do you remember being told about it?
4: I remember it vividly.
1: Right. And that was the first?
4: That was the first experience, yeah. Oh, uh, and? And then I learned to kind of suppress it because... Um, My mother didn't believe me, so I suppressed it for years, you know, when I would see or get messages or see people, you know, that had passed. So I learned to suppress it, and then later in life, I ended up um, learning how to use that to help people. So I have a business management degree, and I ended up being in the transportation business um and so i've seen a lot of people from a lot of different countries i lived in california at the time and i met a lot of people from a lot of different countries and they would i would be in their presence and i would start seeing their loved ones that were had passed and so one day i just it was you know it's actually like divine energy takes over and then I would, um, speak to them and tell them about their loved ones and they would always accept or break down crying or something. And, and it would bring such a healing to them. So that's, that was the start, um, of actually using it. I had the ability my whole life, but didn't use it to actually to help people because I didn't really know how. And so I, I, you know, God actually divide the divine energy started to, Um, Help me to use that to heal people, put me in a position um, in the transportation area so that I could meet people from all over the world and be able to heal them, you know, rather than being in uh, an accounting job, which I started out in after I graduated college, wasn't the means to be able to utilize that ability.
1: So is there... Are, is there always the presence of of more than one ability? In other words, yes. if a, if a person is a healer, uh, energy healer, do they also have the ability to uh, media of mediumship, uh, clairaudience, or clairvoyance?
4: Yes, I I in, I'm only speaking for myself, but I have. I get, you know, I get video pictures, you know, like of things that are going to happen or have happened. I also hear things, you know, from God. Um, I, I just it's a very spiritual connection that is is what takes place during these healings or messages that need to be um, delivered to a person. So there it comes in many forms. Sometimes I will hear the answer or I will see it like a video or um I'll see the actual person. You know the the person that the love the person that has lost a loved one that is coming through. And what, I'll see them.
1: What role does the the departed soul play in the healing process if any? Are they giving well, you information? Well,
4: usually the only the only time that they, you know, that that is ever that they ever um, show up is when that person needs closure or they need to hit he- they need to heal from that person's loss.
1: Okay, so they don't they don't aid and assist in the in the physical healing.
4: No, the physical healing is all divine energy. You know, it's God's energy. All right. And he just uses me as a as a conduit. I really don't do the healing. God actually does the healing and i'm just kind of like um you know i prayed about this once i was like god why why me when you could do this in an instant and he said because they wouldn't know it was me and and i got it right away you know like so if you were if you were ill even if you prayed about that and um and you were sick and all of a sudden you got better you wouldn't really know was it divine energy or did it just go away and then another reason was is because he, he said to me, um, you know, they don't know to come to me for the healing or they won't ask because we all are given free will here, right? We're all given free will to to do as we please. And so sometimes people just don't know to, to go to him and ask. And so he uses me as a conduit between that person or a mediumship between that person. And yeah. so that I'm able to see what takes place in the healing and then deliver that message back to that person.
1: Anita Atwell is here uh, from Kentucky, a spiritual energy healer and uh, also a medium Mm -hmm. Uh, and uh, I mentioned earlier that I found out about you uh, from someone in the remote viewing community Joanne Krobot who's actually here in studio Mm -hmm. uh, with us and I understand that uh, we're heading into a break here shortly when we come back we'll talk about you've recently been on a sort of a whirlwind tour was it down in Florida? Yes. Uh, Laying on hands as they say. Right. We'll find out about uh, your, uh, your adventures down in
3: okay.
4: uh,
1: in the Sunshine State when we come back. Anita Atwell in studio here on The Conspiracy Show. We'll open up the phones as well for questions and comments. And uh, those phone numbers will be rolling across the airwaves shortly. Back with more of The Conspiracy Show. My name is Richard Serrett. Uh, Anita Atwell is with us, energy healer and a medium. Uh, Claire audience, clairvoyance. Uh, yes. I recently – I was on – I hosted Coast to Coast on uh, uh, the last couple of nights, and I had a, um, a gentleman on speaking about materialization mediumship, and this is where mediums produce ectoplasm out of their nose, eyes, solar plexus. Uh, what do you think of that, that whole phenomenon?
4: I'm not familiar with that. Um, I, I do believe that probably that, you know, that that can – that is possible.
1: Yeah, these, I mean, the ectoplasm coming forth, and uh, um, very it was far more sort of known, I guess, back in the, the early days of the spiritualist church in places like England and mm-hmm. even South Africa and, and parts of New England. Uh, and there are photographs of this ectoplasm uh, coming out of this person, and uh, in some cases, uh, an, a full-on apparition formed out of the ectoplasm. Uh, it's, it's remarkable. That's
4: right. That's right. It, it because, um, you know, as as much as we don't want to believe it, we have as many, as much dark energy here as we do light energy. Like angels that are among us, we also have as much dark energy, and they also, you know, can affect people and and be in possession of people. So it's uh, it's a, it's a kind of a scary place, but. It's true. And so when people get clear of that energy, then their life changes
1: we 're going to try an experiment and, and Anita uh, we're putting her on the spot a little bit she 's never uh, attempted this on the radio, but if people were to call in and they sure. wanted to find out about someone who's passed on, you may be able to uh, to contact yes. that person yes sure and also if someone has a uh, a physical ailment, you may, uh-huh. you may be able to peer inside their body and let them know what what might be going on and of course, we always issue the issue the the medical yes. uh, caveat that you need, you need to consult your physician uh-huh. so uh,
4: of course. So tell me what happened
1: down in Florida.
4: So we did this wonderful tour in Florida, and we um, visited several cities um, and were available for healings. And we did groups and individuals, and we had miraculous healings that went on down there. So it was really um, rewarding. Give
1: me a few for instances, some of the standouts.
4: Um, We had a lady that was really, really suffering Um, emotionally um, and I I didn't know that going into it but as the healing took place you know we saw all of this emotional um, suffering from her and so it was amazing like five people that had passed that she needed closure on came through for her and also you know um, she had a relationship a really sad relationship with her daughter who is still living um, and she got during the healing all of this emotion because people suppress emotions, and when they suppress emotions, it blocks the body from being healthy. And she had had cancer, so I would I most definitely think that all of these suppressed emotions were probably the cause of the cancer.
1: Do you believe that's um, the cause of most I d- disease?
4: I do think that's a cause of most disease. Is a body being blocked in either suppressed emotion or dark energy or? Um, Blockage of not letting go of emotional, suppressed emotional problems, pains, past pains. Because I believe in that spot in the body, there's no energy flow. So when the energy flow isn't flowing in the body in that spot, I think that's when the body stagnates and then it breaks down, and what they, we call our immune system gets weakened.
1: Isn't that the I basis of it, a lot of Chinese medicine, qi and, and acupuncture I think so, and so forth? Yeah.
4: So I think when, when you get healed of that, you heal the body along with a diet, a correct diet, right? That's really important um, because uh, you know cancer lives in an acid body. Yes. So as long as the body's alkaline, cancer cannot survive. And along with being healthy emotionally, spiritually, and physically. So if you get those three things emotional, spiritually, and physically out of the body, along with a good diet, I don't think any disease can live in a body.
1: All right. Uh, let's go to the phones. And we have, is it Irene in Rockwood, Ontario? Irene, welcome to The Conspiracy <laughs> Show. You're on the line with Anita Atwell.
5: Uh, yes. I was, hi. Hi. I was diagnosed with cancer, breast cancer back in 2010. Uh-huh. And I went to a face healer, and I believed that I had been healed. And uh, my oncologist said I should have chemo, which I did have, even though I mm. felt I shouldn't have it because I felt I had been healed. Then last year, I was diagnosed again with ovarian cancer, wow. and I'm now going through chemo again. Mm. And even though I think I'm a spiritual person and I believe that I was healed and I do pray to God to heal me and whatnot, but still, Uh now I'm back with this disease again.
1: Sorry to hear that, uh, Irene. What would you like to know from Anita? What would you like to know from Anita?
5: Well, she just said that uh, you have a lot of emotions that you hold in, and and uh, you know, we. I seem to. If that's the case, then I'm causing myself to have the illness.
4: What is your diet like? I'll start with that because um well first off with the with the chemo, the chemo is really chemo in cancer patients is really really bad because it it only not only I'm not a doctor, so I want you to note that and I'm not gonna be written down but um you know you need to check with your doctor but uh, chemo itself is it destroys the good with the bad and so it's so taxing on the body to begin with Got so the end chemo end that you had for the first cancer in the breast probably weakened your body so much so then the cancer was able to um, form in another area i think that's truly what happens when people do chemo you know that it taxing on the body so much it is it's just toxic, um I know that there was a doctor or something on on the internet talking about chemo there's ninety seven percent of the people that do chemo do not get healed from chemo, and so um it's not a healer of cancer. it actually just destroys the body more. I think that um
1: yeah, it's, it's, it's you interesting. Have Very loss. few people seem to die from cancer. They die yes. from all pneumonia and all the other uh, things because mm-hmm. their their body's been ravaged not only by the disease but sometimes by the supposed cure.
5: Right. Almost and- definitely. I mean, the chemo, I had to ask them to reduce it. They reduced it by 20% as from the last one and then this one that I'm having on Thursday. They, uh-huh. Like I said, they reduced the... Uh, reduced it by twenty percent. Well, I think the
4: best thing that you can do for yourself is get yourself alkaline by what you're eating, and and you know, um, cancer cannot live in an alkaline body. So if you get yourself alkaline, and and your your diet's probably acidic, I don't know, but I would I would say that your body's acidic. So if you would get your body alkaline, and then I do feel like that you had a loss. Um, you've had a loss of someone that you've really suffered from.
1: Okay, I think we lost uh, Irene. Oh, uh, there, is she but gone? Hopefully she's listening off the air.
4: Oh, uh, we had a little sorry, with
1: Irene. Phone. That's okay. That's okay. I'm sure she's she's able to listen off the air. Uh, we do have Mary in Oshawa. Mary, welcome to The Conspiracy Hi. Show. Hi, Hi,
6: Mary. Hi. Um, I've had chronic pain for 20 years, and I can't seem to get rid of it. I'm just wondering if you see... Something that's stopping me from getting rid of it, do you eat a lot of dairy? I feel like you eat a lot of dairy I do
4: you eat a lot of dairy and I feel like it makes your joints ache um, so you your body it's it's almost toxic for you you're like um, you're almost allergic to dairy I think oh. so I think if you if you stop the dairy you'll, ha- you'll your body aches in the joints am i correct
6: you' uh, well at- I have an injury. Uh-huh. so the left side of my body um uh is is injured that's where I get the pain in my face head neck mm. um uh arm shoulder upper back lower back chest
4: yes i think you would heal though if you stopped eating the dairy i think you're ha- you have um a- an allergic like an allergic reaction in your body to the dairy mm-hmm. and then your body would heal if you would let go
6: of that really
1: Anything else, or um, Anita Atwell in studio with us yes. from uh, Kentucky, and Mary from Oshawa on the line.
4: Uh, Mary, I think um, that you have nerve damage, mm-hmm. and that if you would, um, you you need to you need to balance your body. I feel like your body's out of balance, mm-hmm. and you have nerve damage. And the nerve is causing your pain. Mm-hmm. Um, in the, I feel like it comes down your neck and through your shoulder. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I think, like, you might need some some physical therapy with that. If you did physical therapy and you got rid of the dairy, you'd feel a,
6: a big a release from the pain. Yeah, I did go to a physiotherapist. Yeah. And he's pretty good. But my problem is um, drafts. Increase my pain. They make my muscle spasm, and so that means like even like a breeze outside or air conditioning or ventilation systems. Um, you know, if I go in a bus or in a car and there's uh, the breeze on there, that increases my pain. So if I go for, for example, for a physiotherapy appointment, I feel better as soon as I leave. As soon as I get on the bus, I get drafts on me, and boom, the pain is back as if I've had no treatment at all. And that's something. Um, nobody else really has. Doctors can't really explain why my muscles. I think so it's bad. aggravating the nerves. See, that, that's what I'm thinking too. Yes. I tell that to the doctors, and they keep saying it's the muscle.
4: I think it's nerves.
6: Mm-hmm.
4: I think it's the nerve damage. Mm-hmm. Um, and I could help you with that if you want to go to our, my website. Uh-huh. I can do a remote healing on you for that and help you with the nerve damage.
1: Okay. And the website. Anita? is
4: um www.anitahealing.com
1: anitahealing.com all right mary um there you go good luck with that hope that was of some help okay. uh, anita you, your mother is a, is she a nurse or was a nurse she is she is a nurse and there was a, a case of a um a 4-year-old boy yes, uh, there was. with a, a medical problem and she called you in to assist tell us mm-hmm. about that
4: well she was um she was sitting with the 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 boy and he had had four well he was being treated for a cold and his mother um kept treating him for a cold the doctor kept treating him for the cold so she after about a month of that she was like there's something else wrong so he said bring him in let's do an x-ray and um, they did an x-ray on his chest come to find out he was born with four holes in his heart so they decided to do surgery so they did surgery and took tissues from the heart and closed the two bigger holes, left the two smaller holes open, and sadly, after the surgery, he had four multiple strokes and um It was really sad, and so he was left paralyzed he couldn 't even move his eyes couldn 't swallow um, couldn't go to the bathroom I mean no limbs were moving, and he also had a jerking motion in his head from back to, you know from the nerve damage. So my mom calls me in knowing my ability. She calls me in and and asks me to come in and see what I could do for him. And, of course, it's always if God is willing, right? So um, I come in, and I immediately know that I can help him somehow. And so I lay my hand on his head, and, you know, I can see in the body like an X-ray, and I just knew that. I could see in the back right of the brain that the brain had just was dead. There was no firing in the brain. That's exactly what I said to his mom. There's no firing in the brain. There's no activity in the brain. And this is the cause of all of the, you know, paralyzation of his body. And um,
1: Was he in a vegetative state?
4: Yeah, he was pretty much. He, he, could, he, had, he was aware, but he had no function to talk or to move his body in any way, not even um, follow you with his eyes. It was really sad. But he, he he was aware and he was somewhat unaware, too, you know. But um so in like five minutes of laying my hand on his head, I could see all of this. And I told his mother, you know, there's no firing in the brain. She was like, that's exactly what his doctor said. And they had given up hope on him. He had been there for two months with, with no change. So we did this healing and miraculously Um within one week he was able to regain movement of one arm and one leg he was able to um, he was able to in the first week um, it was the second week I'm sorry it was first week one at one leg one arm in the second week he was able to regain his uh, movement of his eyes and then the other leg and other arm and he was able to stand And by the third week he was able to speak he said mama for the first time in the by the third week it was really miraculous and so it was it was a blessing it was really a blessing to watch it now are happen. you coming in
1: were you coming in every day doing the laying on no, of hands or just one time
4: just the one time because this energy lasts for 30 to 45 days in the body and so every day they get a little more better a little more healing a little more healing a little more healing and um i told her that you know that he'll be healing a little bit every day for the next 30 days and so now he's almost he's fully he's almost fully recovered. He can stand and move all arms. He's saying sentences. He's back in school, and it's it's really a beautiful thing. It's really a beautiful thing. Now, Thank when God. you have
1: a case like that,
4: <laughs> mm-hmm. uh,
1: how did the doctors uh, explain what had happened? Spontaneous? You know they
4: they they um they don't know they, they well you know they don't they don't really know the healing took place, but. They just, they still said we had given up hope and it's miraculous that he came back. So they don't really realize, you know, that I came in and healed. I don't think their mother told them the full story about it. But she is, uh, she's fully aware that that is the reason he healed. And she's given us a testimony on our website, so it should be up soon. But um, he's, he's amazing. It's amazing how much changed in his whole body. And, you know, it's, it, it saved his life pretty much.
1: There are a number of faith healers uh, on on TV. And listen, I don't need to tell you. There are so many hoaxers out there and charlatans and and so forth. And I always wonder when these healers come on TV, uh, if I had that gift, I wouldn't be on TV doing it. I would make a beeline unannounced to Sick Kids Hospital or what have you. And I would just be there like 24 hours. Right. Um, You know, why don't they do that? Is that because they don't really have the ability?
4: I'm not sure about that. I think sometimes uh, I, I I don't know how to answer that. I don't know. I don't know. I, I think.
1: Do you spend a lot of time in children's hospitals?
4: I do. I have done a lot of maybe not in the children's hospital, but I've my whole life. Just recently have we um, begun to make it? You know, and we have to charge something because we do travel and we have to cover our expenses. But for years, I've done volunteer in um, uh, Betty Ford Center, people from the Betty Ford Center. I've did people in the transportation, just people I would run into from all over the world. I've healed them for free. And
1: All right. Anita, we'll take a timeout. We'll come back. Yes. Anita Atwell here, energy healer, medium. We'll take uh, calls as well, comments and questions as The Conspiracy Show continues. Don't go away. Anita Atwell is uh, uh, with us in studio via from uh, Kentucky and uh, appears to have a remarkable gift the gift of energy healing faith healing would you use that term as well is that uh,
3: healing
1: faith healing energy healing now uh, if I use the term faith healing uh, does that imply that the person being healed needs to have faith
4: not necessarily but it helps if they do but a lot of times that's why I'm brought to them because they don't have the faith to have, you know, to ask God for healing. And so um, I'm the person that kind of brings God to them because they don't have faith. So they don't necessarily have to have the faith.
1: You know, there's an old uh, uh, expression about, you know, prayer. And uh, some people say, well, he didn't answer my prayers. Well, uh, and uh, the reply is, well, God always answers your prayers, but sometimes the answer is no. Is it, does it sometimes happen that someone isn't healed because... Maybe in the big picture, sure. God doesn't want them right.
4: to be It's healed. only if it's in His will that they be healed. So sometimes He has a, another plan for them. Sometimes you're not able to heal them. And I, usually I know that before I have to help someone.
1: You were telling me an interesting story off the air uh, that involves uh, a, a cab because there's a very popular game show up here in uh, Canada, and my, uh-huh. my children love it. It's called The Cash Cab. Cash have you seen cab. it? Uh, uh, <laughs> do you know The Cash Cab? I
4: do. I do. I've watched it.
1: Okay, so it's, it's it's everywhere. People get into this cab, and unbeknownst to them, all of a sudden the lights go off, and now uh-huh. they're involved in a game show en route to their destination. Right. Uh, um, but you had sort of a, a similar, I mean, you had a healing cab. Tell me about that.
4: Yes, I did. I'm. I. I was. I have a degree in accounting, and I was doing that at the time. And I needed a part time job. And um, my roommate at the time was uh, like, "Hey, you know, I, I know a friend that owns a cab company. You could drive a taxi." And I was in like a resort area in California. And I was I was scared. I was like, No, I'm not driving a taxi, it's dangerous, it's da da da, you know. And so she she just kept encouraging me and then I would go and look at the paper for part time jobs and the taxi job would jump out at me. And I was like, I was I actually literally I think argued with God about it, like, I'm not doing that, God, I don't wanna do that. And so it just kept coming to me. And uh so one day she's like, I, I come home and she has a post it posted for me. And she's like, um, Anita, you just need to go over. My friend's already pre-hired you. Just go and do it. And so I started out driving. I said, okay, okay, God, I'm going to do that for like the weekend during the day, not at night. And if I don't like it, I'm not doing it again. But I did it, and I loved it. And it was really crazy. You know, I just loved being with the people. And that's how I started. Like, you know, I had been trained, I guess you would say, by God my whole life to do to heal people, but I had never used it because I kind of suppressed it at an early age where my, my mother didn't believe what I was saying. So, um, this actually in the cab is where I started healing people. And for years, you know, I, I remember praying one time, God, why do you want me to drive a cab? He said, how could I bring people to you from all over the world to be healed? In what other way would I bring them to you? And I really got it. I was, I was like, wow, that's true. So, I started um healing people in my cab and it was amazing. I healed many, many people.
1: How do you broach that subject when they get in and they say, Take me to fifth and main and then you yeah, say well, right I see
4: Well, you know, in the beginning I was against it too. I was I truly was against it and you know, when God's got a plan for you, it's almost like he it's almost like he enters your body and takes over and talks for you. That's how it was happening for me. So I would be like arguing with him, No, I'm not gonna I remember the first time I did a healing uh you know hands on healing with someone in my cab. Um I used to read for people and ha- you know people would come through that had crossed over before but the hands on healing the first time it happened um you know he really spoke to me and said heal this person I'm like heal heal him heal him how you know and he's like just just agree to heal this person and uh I was confused and so uh I, I, it was a girl who had had a motorcycle accident and had three cracked vertebrae um and had disc and was going to have surgery and i had taken her to a restaurant and she twisted her uh twisted getting out of the cab actually to go into the restaurant so they called me back to come pick them back up and he, they're like i'm sorry anita we can't um we can't stay she's twisted her back and she's in so much pain and so I was in on the process of taking them back to their hotel when, you know, he's like her boyfriend was like, oh, can you pull over? She's going to get sick. She's she's so sick. She's got to, We got to pull over. And so while they were outside, while he was walking around, that's when I heard, you know, God or divine energy say heal her. And I'm like, heal her. Heal her. How? You know, and I, I was really confused. And um, but he said, just agree to heal her. So I finally I was just agreeing just to, you know get through it. I was like, okay. So they get back in the cabin. It's almost like, you know, it was God just actually taking over me and speaking through me to that person. And that was the first time I was able to see inside the body like an x-ray. I could, I just, you know, I um, asked her if I could, I actually literally turned around and said, you know, I think I can help you. I can heal you. And at the same time in my mind, I was going, what did I say? What did I say? Cause it really wasn't me. It was, it was God's energy talking through me. And so, um, she agreed to it. Though you know, it's it's uh, when it's him, no one really denies. You know, and and I was in shock as much myself as she was. So, but she agreed to it, and I was able to see inside of her. I just turned around and said, you know, I see that you have three cracked vertebrae, and she had told me nothing. And I said, you you got two vertebrae that are pinching your um, disc. And it's squeezing the disc, which is putting pressure on the nerves that are running down your legs and, and, and almost paralyzing you that way. And so I laid my hand on her back. I had no idea what I was doing at the first, you know, but it was like God had taken over me and was doing this through me. And sure enough, in like five minutes, she was healed of all of the pain. I mean, she had just a little bit left. And by the time we got to the hotel... It was gone, and she—it's like she didn't even remember she was in pain. So she got out of the car and left, and went back into the hotel. And her, her boyfriend's looking at me. and goes, "I know what you are. You're one of those healer people." Well, at the time, I was like, I didn't even know what he was talking about. But, and that was my first healing. It was very—it was amazing.
1: The healing cab, Anita <laughs> Atwell is with us, and the website is Anita, not I need a, but Anita. Healing.com. If you've got a line, hold on to it. We'll get to Don in Mississauga and others here on the Conspiracy Show. Richard Serrett with you. Stay with us. Anita Atwell is with us, healer and uh, medium. Uh, how do you deal with the, the uh, you know the skeptics and the debunkers out there? Uh, and, uh, you know, I'm sure they come after you and, and uh, on many different levels. Some of them may say, well, this is necromancy and this is not Christianity or right. or, or you are a hoax and this is a fraud. And, and how do you deal with that?
4: Well, I have we have quite a few testimonies um, to start with. And then, you know, I, I tell the story that I, I prayed about it one time, you know. Someone said, oh, that's witchery or, you know, and I was confused. I'm like, what, is it? So I prayed about it. And I had, I actually had a Bible in front of me. I was praying about God, you know, if this is bad, you don't want me to do this. Um, tell me now. And he said, open my book. And when I did, I, God's honest truth. I opened the Bible. There it was on the page. It said, there are people that will be gifted to heal and people to, to see the future and when I saw that, I thought that's all I need, you know, but um, for instance, I had healed a lady. I just used testimonies from other people. um I had a lady in my cab one time when I was driving a cab who said who was a regular customer who who said, "Hey, Anita, you want to go to lunch?" And I'm like, "Yeah, sure." And I had no idea. I thought she was just wanting me to go to lunch to um socialize, so we're in the middle of lunch. She said, "Anita, I'm getting ready to have surgery." And I have, and she had known that I was doing this healing in my cab, and I'd spoke to her about it. And she said, "Um, you know, I have cancer. I never told you. And I'm like, oh, my gosh. Um, And she said, can you help me? And I said, well, I don't know. Let's pray about it. And so we prayed about it, and I got a good feeling. And I set up a time to see her at her house, and I did a hands-on healing on her. It took like five, ten minutes. And I told her, I said, you know, I've seen a walnut size. It was like a walnut size. I could see it in the body um, of cancer. And it had diminished down to like the size of my pinky nail, you know, like maybe like a pea size. And I said, "Um, make sure you get an x-ray on this because you may not need surgery. I said, make sure they do a second x-ray. And so she called me like two or three weeks later and she said, Anita, I had surgery. I said, you had surgery? And she's like, yes, I had the surgery. And I said, well, what happened? She said, you won't believe it. The doctor came in. I woke up in my hospital room. The doctor came in and said, I don't know how to explain this to you. Here is the tumor on the x-ray. We went in to get it. I couldn't find it. And not only could I not find it, but the tissues around where it was, I like it never got sewn back together. And so it literally was gone. I was as shocked as she was because it was one of my first heal. It was my very first he- cancer healing. Um, and so it was amazing. I, I felt, I mean, God is, God is powerful, you know? So she was totally healed. And then she asked me to heal her daughter's back who had had a really bad, um, back for like years, 10, 12 years. And so I ended up setting up that appointment and helping her with her back. So it's really amazing. We've an amazing results, and I always say, if it's God's will, you know, and we always pray about it, then, you know, His His energy is endless at what it can do, right?
1: Uh, we have uh, Don on the uh, the line from Mississauga. Don, welcome to the Conspiracy Show. Good morning.
4: Hi, Don.
5: Good morning. Good morning, Richard. Good morning, uh, Anita.
4: Hi. How are you?
5: Good. Well, not that good. That's why I'm calling.
4: Oh, I'm so sorry.
5: No, I, I'm 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 fine. I just. Uh, I have chronic kidney disease, and I'm getting close to needing uh, mm. dialysis. And I'm just wondering, is there anything that you can do for that type of thing?
4: Um, you know, I think I think I probably could. Um, you would have to schedule an appointment where I could do a healing on you, and then I could, you know, would could let you know, but. Yes, of course, If you know, it's God's energy that heals, so...
1: Does it work better uh, if you're laying on hands, or does it work just as effectively from a remote location?
4: Um, it's just as effective as a remote location, because I really, it's not me doing the healing, you know, it's God doing the healing, so... Okay. I'm just the medium that te- you know gives the information back at what took place.
1: Okay, so what does he need to do in order to, uh, to set up that appointment? So
4: he, you would just go to www.anitahealing.com, leave your information, and we'll call you and set up an appointment for you, okay?
5: I could do that.
1: All right, Don, good okay. luck with that. All the yeah. best. Okay. All right, we'll be Thank thinking you. of you. My okay.
4: okay. Thank you. Thank you, Don. Right.
1: Thank you. Do you see anyone? Uh, uh, I mean, we have a number of people in this in the studio here. Albert, the intern, myself. Uh, uh-huh. Any anyone coming through?
4: Coming through. Um, I, I feel like Albert over here might have. Is your mother still here? Yeah, she is. Still- Were you very close to your grandmother, right?
5: Matter.
4: No, <laughs> I feel like a female figure is coming through for you, like that. Um...
1: Anyone, Albert? Any female figure?
4: My my wife, maybe. She
5: has well, but she's yeah. still alive.
1: We're talking about someone from the other side. Oh,
5: but she, she had with <laughs> uh, uh,
4: with her hand. She wanted to. to Oh, she wanted to be healing with her yeah. hand. Yeah, no, this is like someone who is pa- who has passed. That is, and it's a female. I think it's your grandmother, on your mom's side or your dad's side. That's passed.
6: Um, they they've both
3: both passed. But I was born in Canada, and they they came out in 1956 from Hungary. So I I've, I've yeah. never met them.
4: I th- I feel like I feel like your grandmother, and I think it's your mom's side, is your guardian angel. And I think she's around you all the time, and she takes care of you, and that's what I'm seeing for him. That so it's possible, maybe, even if even you're not close, even, even if didn't. you weren't
1: close, uh, yes. it doesn't. Want, these things maybe change on the other side.
4: Right. Well, I think she's just around him and protecting him all the time. Kind all of right. like his guardian angel. But I don't think anybody's past that he really needs to hear from is why he's not.
1: Are guardian angels always uh, um, a relative that's passed on?
4: Not always. Because
1: um, a guardian that, angel is not the same as a messenger from God in that term, in that sense of an angel, right?
4: Well, I believe that there's different angels. You know, there's mm-hmm. lots of different levels of angels. But I think sometimes, you know, your it is that sometimes your family members that cross over are are your, kind of your guardian angels. They watch over you and they have roles to guide and lead you in your life. And I that's what I'm seeing around him. I'm seeing like. I think it's his mother's mother who um is around him all the time.
1: All right. Uh we have But I a-
4: don't think he has had a loss that he needs healing from, so that's why there's no one coming through like that he
3: would know or remember.
1: All right. Uh we he have someone on the line. Him. Is it is it Roy?
3: Yes, yes, Richard. Yeah. Roy. Hi Roy. Hello, Anita. I'm calling to ask if you he could help me out with um uh, lower lower back pain. And uh, the right, the right leg uh, is uh, shorter than, than the left. And uh, there's a pinched
4: sciatic yes.
3: and, and femoral nerve.
4: Yeah, I think your hips are tilted.
3: Yeah, I've got, I've got a sore, a sore, uh, a sore right, uh, right hip. That's correct. Yes.
4: Yes, absolutely. I could book if you want to book an appointment. I could definitely help you with that. And I think that you need to do some. Exercises to um, do you have? Do you have a shoe that has um, an extension on it to yes. balance your? Okay. Yeah,
3: very good. I've had, I've had uh, orthotics, and I had in the right shoe, a lift uh, put in. There's still about another half an inch. They they said they wanted to try three quarters, right. and then they'd boost it up some more later on. You know.
4: Right, because I feel like that shoe is not right for yet for you and that's why you're it's making your hip your hip out of balance
3: yeah it's throwing it and then it's
4: putting a pinch on the nerve and then and i feel like you have a couple of discs in the lower back Yes. i see them yeah and and you've got um you've got like three vertebrae down there and maybe one or two discs that are swelled right and putting pressure on the nerve, and it's causing the pain in your legs. Yeah. But very, you have to have that shoe adjusted.
3: Yeah, very good, Anita. That's that's what it is. So if I go on your website and leave my information, then you'll give me a call? Yes. Well, that would be tremendous, Anita. Th- thank you for giving me some uh, hope for this and for taking the call. Yes, All right, right so Good luck welcome. with that. Yeah, thanks. Have a good day. And Thank you.
4: It's nice I, to meet you.
1: anitahealing.com anitahealing.com Is it physically taxing uh, to uh, to heal either remotely or in person?
4: It can be if it's a big healing. If I'm doing a full healing on someone, um, yeah, it, it definitely takes a lot of energy because you ha- it takes a lot of energy to see um, and so it's it's physically it's physically exhausting sometimes. So um
1: and, and when you're doing a sort of a scan of someone's body when you're peering uh-huh. into their body
4: Yeah, just like now I was doing that.
1: Uh, an x-ray. Does uh-huh. does that does that require a great deal of energy? It takes
4: energy, yeah. It right. takes energy to see.
1: Is any of this ever done in a trance state? Uh, are you like for example like uh, using the the method of an Edgar Cayce where you're you're in a different state of consciousness? Or are you always well, alert? I, when
4: I'm doing it, when I'm doing a one-on one on one on one healing and doing a full healing on someone um i i would i don't know what a trance state is but um i'm definitely in another state i'm in a spiritual realm you know i get into a spiritual state with god and um it's definitely not your normal conscious state to be able to see
1: right right um is there is there any uh, risk of physical harm to you when you're doing this
4: no um you know you have to well you know for a normal person it it would be because dark energy is very uh scary you know it's very powerful and so but i've been trained you know by god on how to make sure that i clear myself before and after a healing because you can pick up dark energy from other people when you're doing a healing and it's very scary so you have to be careful with that,
1: right? Yes. Uh, let me go back to the mediumship here. Uh, we're just about out of time, but uh, and this is something that conflicts me because I'm, I, I'm uh, Orthodox Christian, and uh, I, I believe that you know certain people have the, the ability to heal. Yes. Uh, the, the the quagmire for me though is in um, in dealing with the whole aspect of. Spirit, the spirit world, mm-hmm. uh, because in you know my faith tradition, you know you're, you're dead, you go to sleep, and uh, there is no real contact. How how do you does that pose uh, an issue for you? How do you reconcile, uh, you know, contacting uh, the spirit realm with your faith if that is an issue?
4: Um. Well, I just I just went by. You know, I was confused about it at first, and I, I and I didn't trust it. Uh, because I had people coming to me like you that would say that you know say things like oh you know you know it's not uh, it's against our religion yeah
1: we're warned against that as yeah Christians, you're warned against that to, as
4: Christians yeah and, and even myself you know you're not supposed to, I know even now I know it's true that you're not supposed to concentrate on people that have passed or what's happening in the spiritual world because y- you have. You have things that you, you're here to accomplish. And so concentrating on what is in the spiritual realm is not what you're supposed to be doing. But I believe that, you know, I'm very spiritual. And so I don't think God would have come to me and gave me this gift if it wasn't something that... Because usually, you know, it's not... It's the people that hear that get a, a healing from someone who has crossed over. is because that person is suffering in this in this life almost all i mean always i have never had one person that i had someone come through just to have them come through it's always because that person's suffering from that loss and they cannot go on they're not living their life the way they're supposed to live it and they're being blocked from living their life they're suffering and they can't move forward in their life because of that suffering so when that when that person comes through, it's always because it's to release that or give that person closure.
1: That's interesting. So, uh, because
4: so, and I believe that I truly believe God would not use me to do that if He didn't have a purpose in in healing that person that way. That's
1: interesting. I've never had it. I've never heard it um, put that way. That yes. only in those rare cases, perhaps, then yes. would God allow this chasm between life and death right. to be to be. Uh, uh, bridged
4: because I don't I don't think they're not going to come through if they're if they don't have a purpose of coming through because and if
1: they do maybe they're 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 tricksters trickster spirits uh. yeah
4: exactly <laughs> do, you, do you believe and in I, that yes and I can detect between a trick spirit and a real spirit yeah
1: and a trick spirit would be a, a demonic
4: yeah usually mm-hmm.
1: coming in the guise of a dearly departed right. loved one so so that's really I mean we have to be careful about
4: yeah, that. yeah you have to be careful you have to pray and just have faith and. Uh, you know, and and I believe there's people that delve into that area, but it's not good, you know. And uh, you're not supposed to be messing with that kind of energy.
1: Anita, where are you going to next? Are you uh, are you in the uh, Toronto area for a while? Anita? We're
4: in the Toronto area here for a couple of weeks, and then um, it'll be back down to the States and maybe over to New York.
1: Is there an event uh, while you're in town that you wanted to, to promote, or...? Um nothing specific nothing
4: specific right now but
1: all
0: right sessions
4: we're open to sessions while we're here and so you um, anyone that would like to have something done just go to www.anitahealing.com and leave the information and we'll get back with you all right while no. we're in town we can see people nice personally. to meet you yes nice to meet you too all
1: right need it well thank okay. you uh, Albert thank and you uh, Tim back next week with uh, Michael Horn talking about the Billy Meyer case. In the meantime, don't be afraid. Nothing concealed that won't be revealed. Nothing hidden that won't be made known. What you hear in the dark, speak in the light. What I say in a whisper, proclaim from the housetops. Move over, Aphrodite. I'm
0: coming home. Good night. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.